What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books in Science, and I'm Maya Wollner, your podcast host for today. I'm delighted to introduce you to Professor Erica Dick, Canada Research Chair in the History of Medicine and Professor of History at the University of Saskatchewan. Her research interests encompass the history of madness and psychiatry, the history of eugenics and reproductive rights, as well as the history of LSD and psychedelic drugs. Professor Dick is the author of many articles and books, including Psychedelic Psychiatry, LSD from Clinic to Campus, published in 2007 by Johns Hopkins University Press, and Facing Eugenics, Reproduction, Sterilization, and the Politics of Choice, published in 2013 by the University of Toronto Press. Today, we're going to discuss her newest book, which she co-authored with Alex Dayton, entitled Managing Madness, Weyburn Mental Hospital and the Transformation of Psychiatric Care in Canada. Good morning, Professor Dick. We're delighted to have you on New Books in Science. Thanks so much for having me. Let's just get right into it. I was wondering if you could start by explaining how you and your co-author uh, were inspired to tell this story. It's it's kind of an interesting story. As you mentioned, I, I've done work on the history of psychiatry in Canada and other forms. Um, primarily, my doctoral work was based on LSD experiments that were done in Canada and that sort of uh, evolved into the book called Psychedelic Psychiatry. But most of the experiments that I concentrated on had been taking place in Saskatchewan, and one of the epicenters of that research was at this mental hospital in Weyburn, which is where the word psychedelic was actually coined. Um, and so I've always been collecting this material on the side, and it was after doing a number of interviews and meeting with people about that project the, they really inspired me to think about the longer history and the legacy of not only that place, um, but the way that psychiatric care had transformed across Canada. And, and certainly this is not exclusive to Canada, um, but the role that that particular hospital had played. Allegedly, it was the last mental hospital built in the form of a Victorian asylum. And it also boasts being the first asylum or the first major mental hospital to start really embracing care in the community and the, you know, the movement of people outside of those facilities into community care. And so it, you know, it, it provided these interesting moments, and I thought that it was worth going back to my early notes and, and taking a fulsome look at this history. So it's very interesting that's actually the place where the word psychedelic was coined. Could you actually just take a moment and maybe tell our listeners um, about that? I know we'll, we'll get to some of the LSD stuff as we progress in the interview, but maybe since you've mentioned it already. Sure. Um, well, there was a superintendent who came to Weyburn from London. Uh, he was there from 1951 to 1961. His name was Humphrey Osmond. And he, he arrived in Saskatchewan already interested in understanding hallucinations and delusions and, and some of the core features of psychotic disorders. And one of the things that really captivated his interests were the ways in which um, particular chemicals could cause these hallucinations. And, you know, whether if you can cause those things 
organic, uh, using a chemical, perhaps there's some kind of organic, organic chemical process underlying psychotic disorders in the first place. So he came to Saskatchewan interested in mescaline and um, quickly was turned on to LSD, which is a more potent uh, psychoactive substance. And he engaged in some fairly internationally significant experiments using these drugs that he came to coin as psychedelic. The word itself comes from a meeting that he had with Aldous Huxley. So in 1953, Huxley had contacted him and invited him to come to Los Angeles to give him an experience with, at that time, mescaline, which is the psychoactive ingredient in the peyote cactus. So he drove to Los Angeles with mescaline and gave it to Aldous Huxley, and it forged not only a, a strong bond and relationship at that moment, but for the next 10 years, they continued to correspond right up until Aldous Huxley's death in 1963. And uh, their relationship became very intimate. Uh, they shared, you know, Aldous Huxley was one of the was the godfather of one of the Osmond children. Osmond named his son in honor of Aldous's brother. I mean, there were really close relations. And so they communicated quite openly and candidly throughout this period. And it's through those letters that they started playing with different ideas that might form the word, in this case, psychedelic. And what Aldous Huxley wrote in 1956 was to make this mundane world sublime, just half a gram of phenarothyme. And Osmond wrote back within a couple of days saying that that was very confusing and he didn't think that phenarothyme would catch on. But to fathom hell or soar angelic, you'll need a pinch of psychedelic. And within a few months, he published it in the New York Academy of Sciences journal, so launching it into a medical arena, and the word really took off from there. It's just so fascinating, actually, how such a personal story led to the development of essentially a medicalized term. I think, you know, in the history of medicine and science, we don't often really take into account these sort of chance encounters that lead to such interesting new vocabulary. Absolutely. And I, I think there was a lot of awe involved in it. Uh, Osmond was certainly uh, very deferential in the beginning to Aldous Huxley, who already was a famous author and, of course, came from a rather long line of illustrious thinkers and, you know, reformers in some respects. And so I think he was he really held this relationship in uh, sort of a sacred space. Wow. Yeah. So it seems then that Weyburn was really at the center of some very important developments in the 20th century uh, for uh, psychiatric care. And I was wondering, actually, if you could talk then about why it was sort of cast as the, the last and largest asylum um, built in the British Commonwealth. Yeah, it's, it's quite an interesting story. I mean, Weyburn isn't often a place that you might think of as having, you know, being a center of innovation. It is not a particularly urban space. It is not particularly well connected by train routes or any um, transportation routes to any larger urban centers. And yet I think perhaps because of that, it, it's a very interesting story for, you know, why this place became the site of this innovation and experimentation. And Alex Dayton, my co-author, and, and there were others as well, but uh, he really concentrated on the earlier period. So if I may take a few liberties in, in describing the work that he mostly did, um, he focused on why the, uh, why the hospital was built in the 1920s and why it was pitched as the last asylum in the British Commonwealth. And what he found was that although there were several um, architects, reformers, policymakers, public health authorities, uh, you know, you name it, a number of people with usually from eastern parts of North America, New York, Philadelphia, Toronto, Montreal, 
who were suggesting that psychiatric care was better handled in smaller hospitals, and that we shouldn't have these large custodial facilities that they fill up, they are overcrowded, they're difficult to maintain, and difficult partly because they are very expensive. And, you know, the age of the asylum is coming to an end, and we should start embracing different forms of managing um, psychiatric illness. However, in spite of those warnings, um, the folks of Weyburn, who had lobbied the provincial government to have the hospital positioned in their community, suggested that, you know, that wasn't the case here and that we were going to we were going to improve upon those models. We'll learn from the mistakes of the past and instead we're going to build a big asylum here because it was economically attractive. It would provide thousands of jobs, which, of course, over time it did. Um, and because there was a need for these large institutions to put a, as as Alex has argued, to really secure a kind of Anglo identity in Western Canada. Saskatchewan only became a province in 1905, and it was about 1915, 1916, when they already started having conversations about where to put this facility. And this was yet another architectural marker or a monument to the kind of strength of the state and a real kind of British identity to put it in a Victorian style. How was Weyburn specifically selected? Is that something that you were able to find in the sources? There's some speculation, um, not a lot of hard evidence, but some speculation as to the way that these uh, contracts really were divided amongst different communities in the province. So we know, for example, that Prince Albert in the more in the northern part of the province uh, won the bid to build a number of penitentiaries and jails, and in fact had put in a bid for the asylum as well, arguing that they were already good at managing institutions and this would be another institution that they could bring into that community. They already had staff trained. They were already a good place for that. Um, Saskatoon had already established the university that would become the provincial university that I'm here now in. Uh, Regina had the legislative building, so the seat of power for the government. And so the, there was, in one respect, this idea that there would be a distribution of these of these facilities that would, of course, be economic drivers in the regions. And Weyburn made that bid, and I think successfully made that bid in part to draw out the uh, the economic driving activity in different parts of the province. Mm, I see. So was there sort of a difference between the way in which Ontario and Quebec saw the vision of mental health and the way in which essentially Saskatchewan was pitching this project to have the asylum built out in the prairies? Absolutely. I mean, Ontario and Quebec had already had quite a a long history by that time, I mean, certainly relative to what was going on in the prairies. Um, But they had a much longer history and experience with um, managing uh, madness or managing psychiatric care. So they'd had facilities for, you know, decades at that point. Um, And I think what we found, and certainly what Alex found in the early stages, was that in Saskatchewan, many of the debates did not actually discuss the, the sort of prospect of illness or how to deal with people experiencing and suffering under under these illness conditions, but it had a lot more to do with the economy and a lot more to do with bringing jobs to the province. And so those concerns seemed to override the concerns about the welfare of the people who would come to be patients in those places. So could we say essentially then that Weyburn was also part of essentially a project to settle the prairies in Canada? Absolutely. Uh, And certainly there are other historians who've made those kinds of claims that this phase of institution building had a lot more to do with trying to anchor 
I sort of, as I've described, sort of these monuments of the state or monuments of justice, if you will, you know, features of nation building are really part of building these places. What were the roots of committal in the early years of Weyburn? I, I read a little bit about voluntary committal, and I was wondering, in addition to the other kinds of processes that would lead one to be committed, why might people voluntarily commit themselves to the asylum? It's interesting because we stumbled upon that voluntary committal piece and we're really curious about it. And we asked some of the same questions, you know, what would lead someone to a voluntary committal? And I think there certainly were, I mean, as we know still today, there are people who feel anguish and pain and suffering as a result of uh, disorders, mental disorders, etc. And so people wanted to get help and they saw these places as facilities that might offer that help. I mean, more so than any other facility. However, what we found when we looked through the admission records was that category was almost never used. Um, more, the, the predominant uh, committals came from through a sort of criminal system. So they would be brought in by police um, and the regular uh, flow of, of admission required a judge or a notary of of public to sign off on someone's committal paper. So it really came through a legal system, even more so than a medical system, which came a little bit later. And that voluntary category, although there, was so seldom used that it's really difficult to get any concrete evidence about, you know, any with any regularity how people may have used that. And certainly it didn't come with a voluntary discharge either. Once people were in, there was no capacity for voluntarily saying, yeah, I feel better now. And, and I'm ready to, ready to go. So you've, you've mentioned then admissions records, which brings me to a question about sources. Of course, as a graduate student in history, I'm always interested in, in the way in which people collect and access their sources. So what about for you and this project uh, with your co-authors? How did you find your sources and maybe what was the biggest challenge or what were some of the biggest challenges with regards to this source material? Well, I think the the answer to that is sort of twofold. And and one is, I'll maybe take this opportunity then to talk a little bit about the politics of authorship in this particular project. So when I first started doing this, I thought that I would, you know, do a quick history of Weyburn and its hospital because it was interesting and had all these interesting things that happened there. But as I dug a little more deeply into it and began to really think and appreciate the different perspectives that are really part of this story. So the perspectives of, for example, the staff, the psychiatrists and social workers and psychiatric nurses who worked in that place and really believed in it often. And even when they were critical of it, they still believed in a mission of trying to care for people. And I wanted to capture that without that overwhelming the story. By the same token, there are many, many other stories of patients, um, some of whom identify more so as inmates, you know, felt that they were, you know, involuntarily committed to these places and they weren't really being helped, but they were being confined. And I, I also wanted to get at that piece of the, of the story without, you know, letting one voice prevail over the other, but to try to sort of sound mix these moments a little bit more generously. There were also, of course, really important perspectives from administrators, and I wanted this to be reflected both in the kinds of textual sources that I had access to, but very quickly we recognized that 
finding the voices of some of the psychiatric nurses, some of whom were only there for a few years, uh, finding the voices of patients especially was very challenging to do. And so instead we embraced what we thought was a kind of a novel methodology and, you know, I'll let you (laughs) help me decide whether or not we've succeeded there. But what I did is we assembled a team of people to help to bring some of those perspectives to bear on how we were reading the archival materials and where to make those interpretive leaps and how to really sort of amplify the analysis in certain areas where we were, we were short or we had thin evidence. And to that end, we had a group of people, including a former civil servant who had worked as an intern in the Weyburn Hospital, but who had also been in charge of rewriting the Mental Health Services Act, uh, one that was to align mental health services with the Charter of Human Rights and Freedoms, which was introduced in 1982. We had a former superintendent who was hired. He had earlier been the clinical director in Weyburn and later was hired as the superintendent who was intended to close the hospital and to really move patients deliberately into the community and usher in a new form of care, one that no longer relies on custodial facilities, but looks at therapeutic communities in the community. We also had a psychologist who had um, who had trained for a year in Saskatchewan. His supervisor left, so he went elsewhere, um, but had always had a fondness for this place and had continued to work as a psychologist on treating people mostly with acquired brain injuries, but also was a very important advocate for poverty and arguing, along with others, that in fact our best ways of intervening in the course of mental illness is to improve living conditions for all people both to inspire a kind of tolerance within our communities, but also, he argues, as to have others, that people who don't have enough money to live on are more likely to seek hospital stay just as a form of respite from their lives, almost. And by providing people with minimum wage or a, a basic standard of living, we actually reduce mental health, the expense of mental health to the state by reducing hospital admissions. So we wanted to kind of bring all of these perspectives together, and that not only helped us to find the evidence in ways that I'm sure that I wouldn't have thought to pull all of these pieces together on my own, but also where those bits were missing, we could have these conversations to think about, you know, why was this perspective missing? Why don't we have diaries from patients? You You know, and perhaps that was because nobody thought those were important. So how do we try to compensate for that by bringing in perspectives from people today who can help us think those things through. And I don't know if that fully answers your question, but that was part of what we did. And the second piece that I will say very much about is um, we were able to work collaboratively with the Provincial Archives of Saskatchewan to create an anonymous, an anonymized, I should say, database of all of the admission records from when the hospital opened in 1921 until about 1952, and they kind of trail off there. So there's a really robust sample, uh, sorry, it's, it's a complete sample up until about 1948, and then it, it's not as, as complete after that point. But it gave us a real insight into how the diagnoses were being um, described, but also some of the other information that was being collected at the time, things like gender, race, ethnicity, religion, um, habits of life was an interesting category, um, and the length of stay for, for some as well. So we were able to kind of pull that information together and, uh, and look really carefully at that to help guide some of the questions that we later asked of the, of the more standard textual sources. 
No, that certainly answered the question. Um, I think, no, I think actually you were very successful as a group of authors in bringing together uh, different stories and different perspectives and really weaving them uh, together. One thing that really struck me in the reading of this book was actually the multiplicity of authorial standpoints. So I, d- I do think that, you know, you were very successful um, in that project. And with regards to the sort of very systematized and ambitious project of putting together this database, um, which gives you so much information, I think that's sort of the perfect segue to lead into the next question that I have for you, which is about the kinds of people who um, were uh, interred or uh, taken in as patients um, in the first decades of Weyburn's existence. So, you know, I'm interested uh, in finding out how post-World War I politics and anxieties played into patient demography. But also, I was very intrigued to find um, that First Nations peoples were uh, not represented in as quite high as numbers as I would have maybe expected. You know, today we often, as, as contemporary critics, think about the asylum or the psychiatric hospital as a place where social control happens. And given that the First Nations were such marginalized communities within Canadian society, I would have thought that that would have um, played out in some kind of representation of keeping people uh, in controlled institution, total institutional settings. So I was wondering if you could talk about about that as well. Sure. Um, maybe I'll start with that question first and back my way into the other one. Um, we too were really interested in and very interested in following those race categories when we saw them in the in the database. And I should say that it was really through the partnership of the archives that we, we were able to access that. So we didn't see the raw materials or those original case books, but an archivist was hired to put those into an Excel spreadsheet for us um, so that they could retain the, the anonymity of the patients and yet include those in the database so that once those materials become available, once enough time has passed, that future researchers can also use this resource and link names. So there may be, they may be able to get at even more granularity in their analysis in the future. So we were able to track it to some degree, although what we found were there were really inconsistent application of, of categories. So some, you know, there's a whole variety of words that were used to describe race. And some of them we might not today accept as, you know, qualified racial categories or even notions of categories that we might associate with indigeneity. Um, Some of them, I think, by today's standards, were certainly quite racist, um, and some were rather dismissive. So we don't want to really um, claim any real quantitative validity here. But with that caveat, you know, I'm I'm very fortunate to have a good friend, uh, Maureen Lux, who's a historian at Brock University, And while we were working on this project, she was writing a book that is now published and it's called Separate Beds. And her book looks at the way in which the federal government in Canada had created almost a separate, and she argues, I think very convincingly, a separate and segregated healthcare system for First Nations people, such that they receive different qualities of care, but also the economics of healthcare were such that when Indigenous patients were received by other general hospitals, including psychiatric hospitals, they were often siphoned off into these Indian hospitals. And so she looks at this system of Indian hospitals, of which there were several throughout Canada, um, one of which close to Saskatchewan was in Alberta and Edmonton and the Charles Capsule Hospital. And so those places tended to function as 
facilities for people who were considered First Nations, sometimes Métis and Inuit. I mean, the categories, again, are a bit loose. But the assumption is that the federal government pays for their health care costs directly. And I think that helps to explain the lower numbers that we might expect to see in the psychiatric hospital in places like Weyburn, and certainly it's true in other psychiatric facilities as well. It's not that they are not incarcerated or not institutionalized, it's that they are put in separate facilities. This is also the time of residential schools, and we see definitely connections between the residential schools and some of the Indian hospitals and the infirmaries. I wouldn't want to, for one moment, suggest that the experiences were better or that they somehow you know, escaped the, uh, the trials and tribulations of the, the asylum, um, but that they were captured in a different system. I see. Yeah, you mentioned that in the conclusions of the book as well, there's sort of a short section where there's a, a comparison uh, between the residential schools, their similarities and differences to psychiatric institutions in Canada. Yeah, right now there's um, still quite a lot of uh, political discussion and, and, and social discussion about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada, which was a, a, a national commission to look into the experiences of residential schools. Uh, that is, of, I'm using the language of the time, Indian residential schools, and to collect the testimony of survivors of those places and to really look into how to move forward whether through compensation or some form of reconciliation. And it was partly through that political process, which was taking place at the same time that we were working on the writing of this book, that we wondered, you know, whether there there is an opportunity here to think about exploring psychiatric facilities in the same spirit of seeking truth, that is trying to understand from the perspective, particularly of patients and and to some degree staff who worked in those places and often, very often lived and sometimes died in those places to get those perspectives and then to think about ways of perhaps reconciling that history, which we know is quite dark. There are many, many cases of abuse. There are, you know, these are very challenging, difficult, traumatic experiences. And I don't want to say that they are the same. I think there are very different experiences in residential schools as there are in psychiatric hospitals. But in the context of comparing institutions, we think it may be quite fruitful to borrow some of the spirit of the truth and reconciliation approach. It's a very interesting project, a very interesting idea. I was wondering if we could sort of backtrack then a little bit to the uh, initial question that I asked you was, in addition to our discussion about Indigenous and First Nations peoples, who might else be you know, find themselves committed to Weyburn during its first decades? Yeah, so it's tricky to find those, again, I with the same caveat that I'm uncomfortable with some of, some of the, you know, crystal analysis on this, um, because the categories really shift and it becomes clear that whoever is in charge of recording that admission may bring their own ideas to bear on that. There doesn't seem to be like a unified set of categories that are then applied. Um, but we do see a preponderance of people from Eastern European um, countries who are showing up in the asylum records. And this is true not just in Weyburn, but we see it throughout Western Canada. Um, so certainly there are higher proportions of um, immigrants or relatively new to Canada um, immigrants of finding their way into the asylum. And it's, you know, we've tried to speculate a little bit as to why that might be the case. And it may be that 
there are other authorities who are calling out behaviors that are described as bizarre or, you know, dangerous or violent. Um, but there's also a very clear distinction here between those who are being um, cast out for English skills, you know, their literacy and inability to connect or assimilate into a community um, certainly gets cast aside as being abnormal and sometimes threatening. Um, so we see that moving in a little bit. We also see more men than women, um, which is quite interesting. That's very fascinating. I would have thought, I mean, in my own work, we often talk about gender and women and madness. So it's a very interesting finding. It seems that in spite of the the claims that, you know, men were the breadwinners, which, you know, I'm not trying to dispute that claim, um, but it seemed that women were quite integral, particularly to farming communities of which, you know, there was a, a dominant dominance of agricultural communities, um, agricultural families, farming families. Women were quite um, indispensable to the farming operation. You couldn't really accomplish what you needed to do in keeping the family going. And um, so women actually, when they came in, seemed to also go out at harvest time. You know, you seem there are these seasonal admissions and discharges that seem to correspond with the times when women's work was perhaps more valued, um, but also was really necessary for the functioning of the family unit. And I mean that in the most expansive sense of family unit here. Um, Whereas men, you know, once the breadwinner was taken out of the equation, you know, perhaps other means were sought or there wasn't a sense of recovery in the same way. Uh, We're speculating here a little bit, but we do see that men are coming in and staying longer and that women are coming in and out. Um, So it's tricky to track, you know, without names, we can't be confident that some of the admissions aren't different people or, um, you know, the same person coming in several times. And so we want to be careful about that. But it is interesting to see the... um, sort of cycling through. And what about diagnoses and treatments? Um, I know that in chapter two, there's a lot of talk about chronic cases. And so, you know, you've mentioned that men stayed in maybe longer. So what about chronicity? And then I guess it would be important also to talk about the kinds of therapies that were used in the early period uh, of, of Weyburn's existence. Yeah, what we're finding there too, and again with the diagnostic categories being a bit elastic and you know not, not really um, steadfast and clear, but we are finding that there's a lot of psychotic disorders, so things that we might see now as schizophrenia and to some degree there's some bipolar uh, bipolarity there, which we're, we're trying to sort of make those interpretations, although it wasn't called that at the time manic depression, bipolarity, and uh, psychosis, neurosis as well. Um, we're not finding a lot of cases that are recorded as depression or anxiety. There's there's very little of that, although we also appreciate that they may have been called different things. Um, neuroses might, you know, evolve into anxiety depending on the symptoms. And we don't have a list of, a list of symptoms. We merely have, you know, one or two words that, that sort of capture the diagnosis in the first place. We also see rising rates of um, what's described at the time as mental deficiency or feeble-mindedness. And in fact, what what um, we have a, a student, well, he started off as a medical student, and he became a psychiatric resident while we were working on this project. And he went through very carefully and correlated these classifications with the contemporary classification systems that were being used, we think, by most psychiatrists. We don't know for sure if they had a book with them when they did this, but it seems consistent with some of the classification systems that were in circulation prior to the introduction of the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual, which is now used. And what he's finding is that 
There were the cases of mental deficiency are those who we might today see in categories of intellectual disability, um, intellectual delay. Those cases tended to come in and stay there for life. So in terms of chronicity, and whether it's because there was an assumption that people of low intelligence, and so they were given an IQ test often, if those categories were in fact beyond sort of the um, rehabilitation and there was no cure for it. And so they ended up staying in those custodial facilities such that their numbers started to grow as more and more people came in and nobody left out of that category. And administrators began demanding separate facilities because they felt that people with low IQs were not actually well suited to mixing with people with psychotic disorders, for example, and that they need separate facilities and separate staff separate sets of expertise to manage these different conditions. So would have people been segregated according to diagnosis or according to different kinds of problems within Weyburn in its early period? In the earlier periods, it was mostly related to gender and then ability to pay. So some of the patients who were there because they were brought in through the criminal system who may not have been um, capable of paying uh, would have been given lower wards, and I mean lower, like sometimes in the basement, sometimes on the first floor, which were considered less desirable. Certainly, the basement was the least desirable. And over time, that seemed to shift into um, dividing people, of course, first by gender, but then by disorder or diagnosis. What about children? Were children institutionalized at Weyburn, or were there separate facilities for children? It's a really interesting question. We, we occasionally came across um, notes that indicated that there were children in the institution, and yet it's, we weren't, it's not very clear how many children came into the institution or how many people came into the institution as children, as opposed to how many children were living in the institution who may have been born in the institution. And there's certainly both categories that we think uh, existed at the time. Now, we remember that staff were also living there. So sometimes staff had children there. And so you find this in little notes, you know, that the, uh, the men were working in the wood shop and they were making Christmas toys, uh, wooden Christmas toys for all the children at the hospital. Now, is that because staff were bringing their children to work? Is that because staff were living on the grounds and had their children with them? Were there children who were institutionalized as well? And those lines get kind of blurry. Um, so it's tricky to track that. We certainly didn't see a lot of cases of admissions of young children, like under 12. There were specific homes for you know, considered feeble-minded homes or homes for delinquent children. But we think that once they reach teenage and adolescent and adult stage, they get transferred in. So it's not that it's tricky to, to be really confident there, but I think there's certainly a, a relationship between the homes for delinquent children and the Weyburn facility. It's certainly fascinating to see how, it, how you piece together the parts through these different little notes and, you know, unusual ways of finding out information, certainly. So what about what about therapies, let's say, in the 1920s and 30s? I also want to sort of move into the question of the, the crisis that Weyburn had um, in, the 19, in the 1930s. So maybe we can talk about those two things in conjunction. Sure. Um, as, as with most institutions of this nature, uh, the 1920s and 30s are considered kind of a low point in psychiatric history for the, the real paltry options available to psychiatrists and psychologists and, and superintendents who may actually be more politically um, you know, they may be administrators first and physicians second. There are very few options. There are very few sort of cures or even ameliorative, 
ablative uh, interventions. So um, concentrating on relaxing patients. So we've got some water therapies, some of which are shock therapies. So like spraying someone with cold water to shock them out of a particular behavior, um, but also long baths like many hours, eight to two, 10 hours in a bath, sometimes a cold bath, sometimes a warm bath, sometimes wrapped in a sheet to further constrain movement. Um, these were certainly efforts to calm patients. Um, now, the extent to which they worked or created cures is very questionable. They may have provided some acute relief, um, but certainly people weren't released on the basis of these interventions or suggestions that they were curing or changing someone's behavior in a more transformative way. Um, so there are very few options. It's really not until the, we started to see the introduction of some, of some biological or somatic therapies in the 1930s, 40s, and certainly picking up by the mid-1940s. What we found in Weyburn was that a lot of those therapies were not used with much regularity. Um, there were... Uh, a number of drug therapies being used. So again, things that would simply calm people down, uh, tranquilizers, uh, but those really don't take off until the, the early 1950s. Um, we know that there were some lobotomies that were performed at Weyburn, but there again, the information on it was very thin. We found a single file in the archives named lobotomy saying, yeah, we've tried this on a couple of patients. We don't think it works. Um, now, that doesn't really satisfy my curiosity as to, you know, what they tried and who would they tried it on, um, but it didn't form a fulsome case. And we, we know from some of the work of historians, particularly in the United States, that lobotomies became quite popular in certain areas. Uh, I don't think it was the case here, but it certainly was tried. Electric shock therapy was another therapy introduced around this time, and that was certainly used, and there was a room designated for ECT. And I, I believe it continued on for quite some time. Uh, we know that it still takes place today. So I, I believe that was to be the case. We didn't encounter stories of either patient or staff coming to us to talk about that particular therapy. Most of them wanted to talk about LSD. Mm -hmm, of course. And we'll get to that very shortly. So what about the 1930s and, and the Great Depression um, and also maybe World War II? I mean, are there any, is it possible on the records to sort of understand the experience of the Great Depression or maybe the ex even the wartime experience? Or are those events, historical events sort of at the periphery of what you're what is available in terms of sources? Well, in some respects, they are at the periphery, although, of course, um, you know, the story of the Great Depression in Saskatchewan is sort of forged in our cultural memory here. You know, there's uh, boasting that this is one of the places in the world that was hit severely, both with the sort of um, double effect of environmental disaster and the economy being so dependent on agriculture. And as the crops essentially blew away, this massive and prolonged drought really created devastating conditions. Um, now, some have argued that those conditions also forged a sort of cultural sense of working together because there really weren't other options and embracing a sense of cooperation, collaboration, and real, like, you know, anyone was, was, um, capable of falling into destitution. And so really sort of removing any presumptions about class structure that might incubate you or, or inoculate you, I suppose, from poverty. That being said, the institutions were also relied upon to help provide some relief from the severity of the depression. And we see 
the voluntary admission category being used more often, and yet the institution also turning people away, saying, you know, there was no room and that they, they weren't there to provide economic relief, uh, whether that was a bed or a meal. Um, and the institution itself was trying to rely on its own agricultural production to provide foodstuffs for the for patients and staff, um, and also under, you know, economic and environmental um, downturns. Um, so it's interesting that we thought that the numbers would rise, but it seems that the institution was really closing its doors at that time. I see. That's really interesting. So let's let's move into the question of, of LSD, because I'm sure that many people are obviously very interested in that topic. You know, we have contemporary discussions about LSD microdosing in Silicon Valley for productivity and creativity. So maybe you can tell us um, and feel free to, you know, also include a little bit on your previous work as well. But how did LSD come to be used at Weyburn and why was Weyburn sort of a center of innovation um, for the use of the drug? And if you could also talk a little bit about the architect, Kiyoshi Uzumi, um, whose section in your book I found truly fascinating. So maybe you can tell our readers about him as well. And hopefully I'm pronouncing pronouncing his name correctly. Well, you and I are in the same boat. I never met him, so I don't know for sure. Although I did meet I did meet his widow, and I do believe it is pronounced Uzumi. Um, I think that really to answer your first question, it kind of boils down to the figure of the very charismatic psychiatrist who came from Britain, that Humphrey Osmond. I mean, he brought with him some really interesting, creative, and really not mainstream ideas about how to understand mental illness, but also how to really how to think about it. One of the things that has really impressed me with reading about his work, I never met him, but... Um, I'm currently working on a project that's looking at the letters of correspondence between Humphrey Osmond and Aldous Huxley. And having read through those hundreds of pages, it was brought sort of some renewed enthusiasm for thinking about his role in this history. He's very, very keen to understand empathy and to go to great lengths to empathize with patients, particularly the kinds of patients he feels have been written off by society. Those who are considered, you know, beyond rehabilitation, beyond curability, if you will. So for him, psychotic patients are very fascinating, and he's really interested in what they bring to our society as well. He doesn't see them as merely sick. He sees them as valuable members of our society if we can learn to relate and communicate with them. And so for him, taking psychedelic drugs, if I can use his word, uh, Taking these drugs, which disorient your senses, which you know tamper with your notions of time and space, which can cause visual hallucinations, even some have described um, having delusions or you know like hearing voices. But to go out of your mind, as he would say, and to not trust your own judgment or your sense of logic is something he felt was very akin to what the experience of an active phase of schizophrenia might be. And so even if it wasn't an exact approximation, it was a very useful tool for empathizing with patients who felt that they could not communicate a logic that anyone else might understand. So he first used this as a model psychosis, that's, those are his words, or a psychomimetic to mimic psychosis. And he encouraged staff, psychiatrists, and social workers, and psych nurses to take the drug in an effort to empathize with the patients. Now, initially, he was not asking patients to take this drug. It was really oriented around staff and developing a sort of chemically inspired empathy. 
And a little bit later, he encouraged schizophrenics in recovery. Again, that's his language, although it is language other people have used as well, or people in remission, to take LSD or mescaline, usually LSD, and compare that with their own organic experience. And what's interesting, in some of those reports, these are carefully monitored. They're never left alone. They're always, you know, in a safe place of the clinic where there are no interruptions. He's very careful about setting these spaces up. In those experiences, people describe how enjoyable it is because although there are sometimes terrifying reactions or they see things that they, you know, unwanted interruptions into their ways of thinking, they said they knew it wasn't going to last forever. They knew it would stop and they knew what caused it. And that brought sufficient relief to allow them to sort of reflect on what was going on. And he took this as a way of really thinking a little bit more about the, what's terrifying about suffering from mental illness, but also how we might begin to think about caring for it in different ways. I suppose I should talk about the architect. <laughs> I guess I'll say, I'll say two more things. Osmond who worked very closely with a number of others, including Abel Hoffer, who was a psychiatrist in Saskatoon. And although they were, you know, several hundred miles apart, uh, they corresponded daily um, and certainly collaborated very closely, wrote a lot of papers together. And the two of them also pioneered um, the treatment of alcoholism using LSD. And it operates on some of the same principles that start from a place of empathy. But they argue that for alcoholics, and this gets later extended to addicts more broadly, that they often are um, unwilling to seek help until it's too late, until their bodies are physically falling apart or de uh, physiologically deteriorating, that it's an emotional or psychological impasse. They don't want to get help. They enjoy the uh, euphoria that often comes with whatever the addiction might be, although in their case, mostly alcoholism. And to interrupt that process, they felt that if they could give people LSD, it could give them insights into their own disorder such that they would seek help earlier and perhaps, you know, save lives as a result. This was fairly popular and it was picked up by research units all over the place, um, primarily in the United States, elsewhere in Canada as well. Um, and they claimed between 50 and 90 percent rates of recovery so the highest rates of recovery for any intervention in addiction that had ever been recorded in the past also received a lot of criticism, um, but that's one of the areas that they became very interested in. And there were several people who felt that this therapy had not only benefited them, but had saved their lives. But I'll pause there. <laughs> and, uh, well, that's very fascinating. I mean, there's still a lot of talk actually about the use of alternative drug therapies in the treating of alcohol alcoholism. So I think it's very salient um, to bring that up. The reason why I asked you about Izumi is, of course, because of the, you know, the Yorkton Psychiatric Center. And I was wondering sort of how his impressions of the asylum while on LSD helped contribute to a new idea about what the psychic therapeutic space should be like and how maybe then the Yorkton Psychiatric Center would have compared with Weyburn as an institution. So as we're moving into, you know, the, the 1960s and 70s and the deinstitutionalization of mental health care in Canada, how maybe also LSD can be seen to have played a part in helping shift the psychiatric space. Yeah. So, I mean, building on that notion of empathy, one of the things that Osmond was sort of 
disgusted by almost was the state of the hospital that he inherited the directorship of. He felt that, you know, the hallways were long and echoey, the uh, the rooms were overcrowded, that people were languishing in this space. And there were limits to what he could imagine doing as a psychiatrist in terms of helping people. Um, but he also felt that the space of the place, the sort of layout of the hospital was actually um, causing more harm than good. And so he convinced the then premier of Saskatchewan, Tommy Douglas, um, to help set up a commission where they paid architect Kiyoshi Azumi, who had been living in Saskatchewan for some time, but he had trained at MIT, at the London School of Economics. He traveled quite a bit and, and trained extensively in something that he would later develop as environmental architecture. But at the time, in 1957, he came to Weyburn at the behest of Osmond and took LSD and wandered around the hospital, sort of based on that notion that, you know, they were chemically creating a sense of empathy. So if he could imagine what it was like for a patient to experience this space, but using his expertise as an architect, then turn those insights into concrete, if you pardon the pun, into structural changes in the facility to help improve the socialization of patients. And to give one quick example, he noticed, for example, that there were, uh, they used a sort of checkerboard tile pattern in some of the hallways. And he argued that, you know, when you're experiencing a visual hallucination, some of those dark tiles appear to be holes in the floor rather than solid surface. And so it may not be that someone doesn't want to leave their room and come out into the, you know, the common room and socialize with others, but that they fear that they are going to fall through the floor. Wow, that's really that's really powerful. That's really powerful. Um, so, what about deinstitutionalization at Weyburn? Was there anything particularly specific to the way in which this institution, in particular, dissolved its walls? Absolutely. Um, so, psychiatrist Hugh Lefebvre, who uh, was one of our co-authors and was also very instrumental in ushering in deinstitutionalization in Weyburn. Um, He's really the person who became our point person on this part of the discussion and certainly on what we wrote. Um, and he explained to me uh, that he came in with the single purpose or single goal of shutting down the hospital. Uh, he felt that he, like Osmond, felt that these places often exacerbated illness and further alienated people from their social networks, whether those were family or friends or employers or church groups, it didn't really matter. Um, it was that once you were inside one of these facilities, it was very difficult to reintegrate into a community setting. And it was very difficult to overcome the stigma associated with it. So even if you had the willingness and the motivation, uh, people wouldn't accept you. And so he wanted to dissolve the walls very quickly, and he did to some degree. He, depending on who you ask, pushed people out or encouraged people to leave or released patients into the community on a wide scale, much more rapidly than was done in many other jurisdictions around the same time. So he was hired in 1963 into this position, and within a few years, he had moved hundreds of patients out into the surrounding communities. Um, I was going to ask, how did the community members respond to this sort of maybe large-scale discharge? Were there challenges um, that the, the community felt with that process? Absolutely. And, you know, it's really, it's really multifold because some of the, uh, well, 
on the first point, the kinds of economic supports, the, the, the policy supports that were supposed to link up with this shift to care in the community never came to fruition. So there were, weren't enough social workers to accommodate the flow of people into communities. There weren't enough follow-up appointments. There weren't enough, you know, uh, places of receptive employment. And it was very challenging to then absorb this, this sort of movement of the population into places like Regina or even the town of Weyburn or uh, nearby places like even as far as Yorkton or Saskatoon. Um, so those are some of the initial general responses, but also there were a number of psychiatrists and administrators who were quite frustrated and I think, quite frankly, exhausted with this transformation, and they left. Um, Saskatchewan also was going through changes in terms of introducing Medicare at the same time, um, the first in the country to do so. And so there was a lot of political capital invested and political will invested, and it was also quite divisive in terms of, you know, people lining up in support of these government programs or starting to move away from them. So there's a dramatic movement of professionals outside of Saskatchewan at this time. They're moving away, they're being, and sometimes for good reason, being encouraged to take up positions in other places. And I think the combination of the loss of the individuals, the individual champions, and the inadequate economic support meant that movement to care in the community was very challenging. (laughs) Wow. So we're running out of time, but I want to ask you one more question before we go. Um, But what do you think was the most important thing that you learned from this project? I know that's sort of a charged question, but I I want to ask it anyway. Um, I I think I have to say that, you know, uh, I think working as a team in trying to write this as a team with people who we sometimes shared perspectives on things, but we also came from very different levels of expertise and connections to the place and to the outcomes, the, the way that we wanted to talk about the legacy of this place and what it meant for helping us understand psychiatric care in the 20th century. I think working through those differences and trying to find ways of collaborating across our differences was perhaps the thing that will that will remain with me most, and I hope to carry forward into future projects. Thank you so much. That's very methodologically powerful, that's for sure. So I want to thank you again um, for taking the time to speak with us today, and I really appreciate our conversation. That's all the time we have today. Thank you for listening to New Books in Science.